Hello and welcome to the Elm Park Rolls podcast supported by Blue Collar Street Food. Well, today I've been joined by a man who only last week on the podcast with Brian McDermott was described as possibly the biggest ever impact a player has made when he signed for Reading Football Club in our history is Jason Roberts. Jason, great to see you. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. And thank you for thinking of me uh, regarding uh, this content you're producing. Uh, and you're doing a fantastic job. And I know you've had some, some really great people on. So I feel, I feel very proud to be part of it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Well, I like to say, you're one of the top people that people always want to hear from. So let's get into the period just before you signed for Reading Football Club. You're at Blackburn. Um, you probably want to move out. Explain how the move came about to Reading. Well, actually, I, I was, you know, I really had a good time at Blackburn. It was a, when I went there, it was a really good dressing room. Mark Hughes, the manager, Mark Bowen uh, working as an assistant. We had Eddie Nowitzki. The training was very good. We had Benny McCarthy up front. Uh, we had two guy in midfield, Ryan Nelson. We had a very strong team and we, we had two or three good seasons. We're coming to the, in the top 10 in the Premier League was an expectation that we, that, we, that we were able to achieve. In addition to that, and it's always, when in the Premier League, it's always important when you're a team that's in the round mid-table, it always changes the season when you have good cup runs. And we had a couple of really good cup runs uh, in Europe, uh, Europa League. So I felt, I felt really good about my time there, but there were some changes of ownership. There were some changes of managers towards the end. Sam Allardyce came in and we had, we had an interesting relationship in that we would clash but playing for him is very clear what you need to do so so I enjoyed the structure of the team uh, and it was it's a great club it really is towards the end of my time there Steve Keane had come in we just about stayed up the season before and that final season before I left for Reading there were some contractual challenges around uh, if I played a certain amount of games I would get another year and the club they had some issues with that regarding my age so it just felt right that it was time for me to move on and there was some interest uh I wanted a change I, I wanted to be in a dressing room that was more things had changed at Blackburn regarding the dressing room and I was really fortunate there was a lot of interest but once Reading came in I was I was focused on that and we pushed really hard to make the move work both Reading and myself and it just happened just after my birthday I believe uh, my birthday, 25th of January, I think I moved the 26th or the 27th, and it was an ongoing back and forth between the clubs and myself. But we got the deal done, and I was really excited about the challenge. Yeah, totally. And when you came in, this was just after we had a change of owner with Anton Gazerovic and TSI coming in. What are your interactions with him before you signed? With Anton? Yes. Uh, no, none. None. I was okay. aware that there was, there was a new ownership group, and I think. That's always exciting. Uh, Reading at that time were in the round promotion that they had made the, the playoff finals the year before. You could see there was, there was a good side there and with a new ownership group uh, showing that ambition to come and get me from the Premier League. Uh, we had some detailed discussions about the wages and the length of contract, uh, but I felt that they showed necessary ambition. And I, I'd always had a good impact in the championship. And I felt that at Reading with the team that they had, that I, I could add something to it. No, definitely. Because when you came in, we were fourth after the, your first game. And we were already in the run of eight wins out of nine games. You come in, 
you score what I would say an interesting first goal from your penalty, Jason. It goes in. That is all that matters. But you got to admit, it was a little bit scrappy. <laughs> interesting is kind. I mean, it was... No, I stepped up. It was... I won the penalty. And I was, I was very focused that I was going to... Uh, you know, you always want to start well at a club. I learned many years ago that if you start well at a club, you're always a good player, regardless of how things go uh, over the fullness of time. And if you start badly, you're always a bad player who's doing well if you, if you suddenly find some form. So I was very focused on that. It didn't go as I planned with the penalty. David James saves the penalty against Bristol City. But I bundle it in. It's weird because I couldn't sort my feet out, but I just managed to get enough contact. And I don't think uh, David has ever forgiven me for stamping on him as I put the, the ball in, but I had to do what I had to do. But I felt really good in that match. It was a great reception from the fans. And I'd only been at the club for a couple of days at that point. So, you know, you want to stamp your authority and, and, and just show that you can, you can bring something to the team. So that was important. Yeah, there was a huge amount of excitement when you came in because... I spoke to like Brian and he said that you brought a real swagger and a real authority in the dressing room when you came. And you also talk about when you come in, you've got to make a statement straight away. At Wigan, you scored after 35 seconds. So that kind of backs it up. If you get that goal quickly, it really helps you. But what did you think when you go into the dressing room? You've got some big characters there. Did you feel this is a team straight away that we could go up? No, first and foremost, I always had there was always something in my career between me and Reading. Uh, from as early as playing for Bristol Rovers, one of the first games at Majeski, and I, I think we win 6-0 or 5-0, I'm not sure. Yeah, Jason, that's so, enough on that one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but myself, what was interesting about that was myself and Jamie Curriton, we scored, we yeah. scored uh, the goals in that game, and then Jamie went to Reading, so I always had an eye on Reading from there, and you mentioned Wigan there, some of our games against that really strong uh, Reading side that you had when I was playing for Wigan, uh, you could see that there was great things coming. Obviously, that team went on to get promotion. And Lloyd Awusu being a, a big friend of mine and, and Brian McDermott, who I had known, um, coming up through non-league. So I felt like there was an affinity between myself and the club. Uh, and it's the closest I ever played to... I'm from Northwest London, born. So that was the closest I ever played to, to my neighbourhood. So it was great having family and friends able to come to the game. But what I saw when I went to that to Reading was a squad that had an experience and know-how. And in the championship, that's a huge, that's a huge benefit. So when you look in goal, you've got Feds, experienced, been there a long time, knew what it took. You had Casper Gorks, you had you had Griff at right back, you had Ian Hart at left back, all the experience in the world, uh, legend midfield, Joby. So you knew that there was a spine of experience and knowledge and know-how that knew how to win games. And then you also look at the youth and you've got Piercy at the back, you've got Jem. Uh, so that is a, a collection of people who understand the club. And then you always look up front. And I thought up front, we were especially strong. Uh, you had Churchy who, you know, scored his fair share of goals, but worked hard and brought something different. You had Lafondra, who was always a goal threat, uh, whether coming off the bench or starting games. You always knew if he had a chance, he'd score. And No Hunt, who... His work rate, his enthusiasm, his leadership as a striker, it just felt that I would add into that and we would have four very different options. Uh, and the balance of it just, just really felt right. So you could see what the manager was trying to do. He wanted to have an experienced side which knew what it took to get promotion and win games. Yeah, I mean, after that game, we win eight consecutive matches. I mean, that is such a crazy run of form, isn't it? I mean, overall, we get 15 wins out of 17. I mean, 
those numbers are just <laughs> incredible. Um, you then go on to score a few more goals. Your next one is against Burnley, which I think maybe was your best goal. Technically, it's coming in from the cross, then hitting it over the goalie. What are your memories of that match? Uh, well, first of all, it was against Burnley. And again, my history tied to Burnley is being an ex-Blackburn player uh, at West Brom, where the Burnley fans used to give me a lot of stick. I, I knew that that was a game I was... Again, you speak about the run. We were all very focused. The great thing about the championship is when you're winning games, it's game after game after game. There's no real chance to rest. So when you're in a good vein of form, it's very easy to maintain it. And against Burnley, I remember the ball coming across. I just peeled out a little bit, trying to find some space. And between me and you, I hope you won't share it with anyone. I'm not sure I hit it as cleanly as I wanted to with my weaker left foot, but they go in, it looks great. They go over the bar. You look at the ground and <laughs> kind of blame a bobble. But yeah, it was, it was a good goal. But more importantly, um, a good performance from a team. We always felt that if we got ahead, the opposition would have to do really well to score against us because we had that work rate and that discipline which came from the manager and, and the, the coaching staff, which, which was really exceptional at Reading. Yeah, I'll keep the secret about the goal, Jason. I won't mention that to Appreciate me. it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to get more goals against Coventry and Leicester. And not only that, throughout your career, you do the same thing. You assist goals against Millwall and Portsmouth. What was more enjoyable for you as a player, scoring or setting up goals? Or just is it just the team winning? You're not worried? Because, you know. I think the type of striker I was, I always, it was always about winning sometimes. And especially if you play one up front, the great thing about Reading is you play two up front. You recognise in that position, sometimes you need to sacrifice yourself for the team. And it's something that I did a lot at Blackburn, actually, playing up front by myself, being a focal point for the team, being a target for the team, playing in many cases with your back to goal. But that's something that you do for, for, for the team. But there's no doubt it's winning. Winning games is, is the pinnacle. And even now I look back, what do I miss most? is going out as a teammate with, a, with your team, you against the opposition, trying to find a way to win. And sometimes it's doing it with, maybe you're not better technically than the opposition, but nevertheless, you find a way to win football matches. And I think that was the groove that we were in in that run, in that we found a way to win. We were set up very disciplined. I think we were one of the best teams defensively that I've played in from front to back, but also with the pace we had on the wings, with the creativity we had, we always knew we could cause people problems. And that happened time and time again in that season. Yeah, I think it's a real team of just sheer quality altogether and just determined to prove a point as well for multiple different reasons. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best team in that league, but it's the best team ethos, definitely. It just you know, when you say up. that, I take that as a, a huge compliment mm. because I think that as a, as a squad, you look at some of the teams, Southampton had an extraordinary squad. You look at what they went on to achieve in the end. West Ham had invested a lot of money, Leeds, Middlesbrough. There were some really strong sides there. But I think that we were able to overcome that with organisation, with motivation, with, with, a, with a group that were able and willing to sacrifice for each other. And when I say sacrifice, I talk about the squad. You talk about someone like Jay Tab, who continually came in and out of the side, never complained, was always upbeat, was always the best trainer. 
And, you know, whether he was in the side or not, he always gave everything. And in many ways, he was, he was a, a, a lightning rod for the squad regarding his attitude. And you'd look at Jay and you think, you know, you take your lead off him. You take your, your lead off, off the experienced players we have in the squad because we realised that it was about us extracting every last bit of quality that we had in the squad because some had bigger squads. Some had technically more gifted players, but you know that that's a real that's a real art and a skill. And I think it comes. Well, I, I say I think I know it comes from the manager. It comes from the dressing room. It comes from the personality of a squad, which really allowed us to be better than the sum of our parts. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, someone wrote a book about the sum of parts, but that was a different season <laughs> about their one oh six season, but. Yeah, it's a remarkable when you see them and talk to the players that have been involved in it. They're all the same, doing ones with Noel Hunt, Jem Karachan. They talk about more about other people than themselves. And you're being exactly the same. And that's why that team was so amazing to watch. Yeah, I think that comes from management. I think we're Brian, who, you know, I really, I, I really can't say enough about him. And I look forward to, to, to giving you some more insights into working with Brian. But I think what he did, was he managed a group of personalities and individuals exceptionally well and kept us motivated. And I think you, I listed some of the experienced players that, that we had. That wasn't by accident. That was him recruiting the right personalities, the right individuals, and letting them do what they're good at. Not asking us to do something, whether it's tactically or technically, that we weren't comfortable with. Not asking us to play a formation that didn't, that didn't play into our strengths, but saying, these are your strengths, you know what to do. Let's concentrate on what we do well, and we'll go out there and do it. And he, he got things absolutely right where, where, that's, where, where that's concerned. Yeah, definitely. Even from my, only my brief encounter with Brian McDermott, he's a classy individual. And he knows, he deals with people in a certain way, which is, he, people just have that ability or they don't. He, yeah. he does, and I think, um, I've worked with many managers, uh, but to me, Brian McDermott was a lesson in leadership, a lesson in being authentic. He didn't ever try to be anything that he was. Some managers, they feel like because they're the manager, they need to be the loudest um, voice in the room. They need to be shouting and screaming and bawling. And Brian has a quiet authority about him that is genuine. I, I, I get the impression from my dealings with him, both as a manager and outside of, of football as a friend, He's the same with everybody all the time. He never changes. And I think, you know, in, in my, my working life now, dealing with various leadership styles, Brian's leadership style is something that has impacted me personally because it's all about being authentic. It's all about being genuine. And that's how he was with us. It, it was a real lesson. And he was able to pick individuals, to set up us, us up in a way that would, that would accentuate our our abilities, but also allow us to, to be free and give the dressing room somewhat to the experienced players, you know, hand it over to the, to the experienced guys and allow them to, to be themselves. And I think that that was brilliant. And his team talks were so consistent. It was about what we'd done. And what I thought was really interesting at the end of every game, it was very brief, but it was always on to the next one. We never stopped to talk about what we did too well. We never spoke about what we did too, 
that was negative in the game, even in the games that we did lose, it was okay. On to the next. It's only three points. And that kept us grounded. That's why we never looked further than the next game. It sounds like such a cliche, but I've been with managers who, who focus on a full game period or focus on blocks of games. He would only focus on the next three points. And that gave us the ability to never get ahead of ourselves, to never uh, focus on what is actually important, which is the next game, which is the next three points. And at the end of that, box it away, put it behind you and move on to the next. And he was, uh, honestly, as a human being, one of my, one of my favourite managers and one of my favourite human beings. Yeah, definitely. I've never heard anything negative about him. All those yeah, you won't, because uh, he's, he's just, just the same. He's a genuine, good, good guy. And he didn't have to try to change uh, in regards to his position as a manager. And his door was always open. You didn't have to always agree with him. I'm pretty sure that people went in there and had their arguments about whether they were playing or whether they weren't. But when that door was shut, all, all of those issues were put aside and we were moving together to try to get to our, our shared goals. And like I said, I mean, the biggest compliment I can give him is that it was a real lesson in leadership working with him with Gibbo, with his staff and with that bunch of players. Yeah, when you look back, we were just lucky to have him. And the amount of love he's got for Reading FC, even when we were, I was doing the podcast with him, he kept on saying we. He can't stop saying we all the time about Reading, even though he's left a long time ago. But getting back to the season where you were there and impacting it, you then score another goal at Barnsley in a 4-0 win. We're really motoring now towards the top two, which seemed incredible because we start the season and at one point we were third bottom and just a typical of a McDermott team just to go on this incredible run of results but we then move into the two pivotal games against West Ham and Southampton two games that have gone into kind of Red and FC folklore just amazing games what is it like to play in those two games uh it was the atmosphere was incredible and you know, as much as I just said about the next three points, it's only three points. And that's what we said. And, you know, that was the narrative going into the games. But I think we knew in those two, you know, these were the moments where we not only had a chance to win, but to really um, make a big impact in our nearest rivals. And West Ham, you know, the, the gravity of the club, the size of the club, the prestige of the club, the squad they had, Sam Allardyce's manager, they were a very organised side. Uh, we went behind, but I, I just really felt that we always knew we were, we would always stay in games somehow because we had the know-how, because of the experience, because of the youth in the squad. So we just kept in the game and kept our belief. And one thing that we always knew we had in, in our locker was incredible delivery from Ian Hart. And we had such a threat, whether it was Pierce, whether it was Gorks, we had such a threat. Uh, in set pieces that we knew that there was always an opportunity for us. It might be ugly, but a chance would come. And that, that, that was true in that West Ham game when Casper gets us back into the game. And then I have a bit of a rough and tumble. It drops to Harty, uh, sorry, drops to Hunty and he puts it in. Uh, so yeah, there was never a moment when I felt that we, we weren't in the game and it would just take a little bit of quality uh, from us to nick it. Yeah, there was a bit of quality in the Southampton match from Jimmy Kebe from that cross. I mean, that I mean, if you could put a cross on your head, that must have been absolutely where you'd want it. Well, first of all, if you could put a cross on my head and I could actually head it. Heading wasn't my strong point. 
No one said the same when I spoke to him. It really wasn't. I have to be honest. I found a way to get through a career as a (laughs) six-foot striker uh, without heading the ball too much. How does that work? I I, I don't know. You know, there's a technique to it. You back into into the defender, make him head it down, you get the seconds. Or if you have to head it, I guess... I guess you do. But that particular one, um, Jimmy's cross was just perfect. He was really wide as well. So it had to be a really good cross. And I just managed to get the jump on, on Fonte and the striker's trick, which is if you can get your arm up over his shoulder, then he can't jump. And I just managed to get that, 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 uh, that, that steer on him. And it just fell right. And I closed my eyes and let the ball hit me. And it just flew in. And again, Difficult game, top side, well organized, but we just knew, we just knew that we had threats coming off the bench. We had a strong squad, and when the Fondra comes off the bench, you know that if a chance comes, he's he's going to put it in. So, yeah, we had so many tools to be able to win games. Actually, it was funny. We played against Middlesbrough, and we won the game one nil. I think it was. I think it was one nil. I remember we came off at the end of the game, and one of their players said. You lot are one of the worst sides we've played all season. Uh, Because we hardly had a kick, but we were organised. We controlled the game without the ball. And again, that's a compliment. You know, they had all the ball. They felt like they had better technical players. But in the end, we had resolve. We had organisation. We had a team spirit that meant that at no point in that game did I believe they were going to beat us. And it rang true. No, I totally felt the same going to the match. And it's very rare that I felt like that. Whereas a Ren fan, just so confident. I just knew it was going to happen. Even when they equalised, I just knew something would happen. And like you said, I knew we had um, LaFondra come on as well. And he was just a machine at that point. He, would just... he did. And again, we talk about leadership. We talk about uh, the, the management team, Gibbo and, 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 and Brian. To keep him motivated keep a JTAB motivated, to keep, to keep uh, LaFondra motivated when, you know, he's coming off the... I've been in that position and I know how difficult it is, especially when you're coming on and making impacts in games, to keep a Hal robson Carnu motivated who's been in and out of the side but has immense talent, um, to keep a Churchy motivated. I think that was the bit where it was real masterful management in making sure that the whole squad understood their jobs, understood what they could bring to the squad and were okay with that their spot and they were they were happy to to do that and that doesn't happen all the time and when I went into the dressing room that it reminded me I mean things had got had got difficult at Blackburn we had a lot of international stars we had a huge squad and sometimes that can fly in the face of team cohesion because everybody is a superstar in their country everyone has a profile that they think is sometimes more important than the direction of the team but going into that Reading dressing room, everybody was going the right direction. Everyone was going the same direction. We all were prepared to sacrifice for each other. And that came from uh, the management and also the experienced players really having a handle on, on, on the dressing room and setting the standards. So I get a lot of credit for that. And it's really kind that Brian would say some nice things, that you would say some nice things. But I came into a really great culture and a place that was based around values. And regarding swagger, I mean, I don't know if it was that. I just had a, I think I had a genuine belief. I'd been in that level before. I knew what I was capable of. And if I was able to bring my belief and supplement what we already had, then, of course, I, I, uh, I recognised my role within that, within that team. 
Yeah, well, I remember when we used to play against us for different teams and I knew it was going to be a hard day. I could just see, I knew exactly how you were going to work. And then when you come to us, I thought, yes, this is going to be really good signing for us. It's going to cause nuisance, he's going to score some goals, assist them, and you completely delivered on that. Well, I was a little bit older and I remember, because I'd been for the first six months beforehand in and out of the side at Blackburn, I'd never really uh, established myself in the way I would have liked. At Wigan, I think I did, even in the Premier League. And at Blackburn, there was fits and starts. We never really found the right chemistry. I had some periods with Benny McCarthy where I was, I was able to show what I was capable of, but I didn't really grab, grab the club the way I would have liked to. So I know that there may have been some, uh, some nervousness about my age, maybe around uh, the fact that I wasn't playing as regularly as people would have hoped at, at Blackburn. In my eyes, that was because of the contractual situation. But I knew I was fit. I was, as, I was at that point in my career where I was, I was very fit, but I'd seen it all. You know, I'd, I'd experience-wise, I knew my game as well as I could. I knew the division. I knew the, I knew the players. Uh, so I was extremely confident in, in what I felt I could bring to the team. Yeah, I think maybe you knew some of the dark arts as well, Jason, maybe. Oh, definitely. That, that's part of knowing your game. And, yeah. you know, it, yeah, I mean. I love that, that when a player my... comes to us and they know that, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think my game was about being able to upset the opposition. I think it was about bringing a lot of noise to where I was, whether that was physically or even in my personality, drawing a lot of that noise uh, as a striker, which would attract people to me. and I. And I think that, especially when I played in a two-up front, my striker would always, my, my fellow striker would always get a lot of benefit from that because physically people would want to take me on. They'd want to have a fight. They'd want to have a row. We'd upset each other. And then there'd be a little bit of space uh, for my fellow striker. And when I had the right chemistry, and No Hunt was an excellent partner for me because he worked hard as well he would bring a lot of noise a lot of attention himself so that meant that we always we always upset the back line and then when you had the kind of pace we had on the wings uh with how whether it was how coming starting games or coming off the bench whether it was jimmy with his pace and his inventiveness whether it was joby cutting inside and creating new new angles to attack you know it it was a it was a perfect marriage of of ability and and know-how yeah, it definitely was. And it ends up with promotion against Nottingham Forest, against what kind of like what you said just a few moments ago, a scruffy goal, really. But it doesn't matter. It's a goal, isn't it? Who, who cares? Look, I, I don't think many of our games or many of our goals would be, would be something that you'd watch back on a replay and, and talk about the, the, uh, the patterns of play and the, and the beauty of it. But in that, in that situation, you can... You can find a strength in that and you can lean into it. And I think we lent into our limitations. And I mean that, and I mean that in a good way because I think those limitations start with myself um, in that I knew what I was good at. And, and I think the whole team mirrored my game in that we lent into what we were good at and didn't allow, us to be, didn't allow ourselves to be put, in, put into a position where we were uncomfortable. Yeah. And we made the opposition uncomfortable. And whilst that's not a technical thing, I can't say that we sat down and 
that was a, a technical presentation, but it was just a knowledge and an understanding between ourselves and the coaching staff that this is what we were good at, this is what we were going to do, and it was up to the opposition to stop us. Yeah, that totally worked. So we go in, we've got promoted, everything's perfect. Um, unfortunately, we have the Crystal Palace match. And there's an incident in that match, Jason. Uh, now, now, we've had a few years since that incident. How do you look back at it? I still don't think it's a sending off. I, I, mean, I, still, say that. I just had that feeling. <laughs> I still don't think it's a sending off. I mean, it's a... Yeah, I mean, I played with my elbows up. I, I, I protected myself. I was very physical. Uh, I think it was... I still don't think it was the right decision, but it's one of those things. I think during the season, you get a few of those, and, you know, my, my family are not, not too proud about my sending off and yellow card records. So, you know, maybe there's a theme there, but... I'm definitely going to stick to the fact it wasn't a sending off. No, that's fair enough. <laughs> You've done the job, so it doesn't really matter yeah. in the end, does it? So we go into the summer. And during that summer, you actually signed a contract extension. Now, this caused a problem afterwards because it wasn't released by the club. Um, I don't know why that was, but how do you look back at that period? You know, I, it's, I'm disappointed in that because I think it... it Coloured the way I retired in the end. Uh, I had signed a contract and the understanding was we would get promotion. I signed an 18-month contract when I signed. And the feeling was that we would talk about it again when I got promoted. And I was happy to do that because, as I said, I was, I was very much focused on if the club do well, then I would do well. And I think that's, that's right and proper. Uh, when we got promoted, I know that the club were looking to sign new players. And as ever... It's always a difficult time for a club when you're promotion because then there's the contract negotiations with players who have got you there. There's the new players are coming in. Are the new players going to be earning a lot more than the players who got you there? There's always that push and pull. And I've always seen that um, at my previous clubs, no more so than Wigan, where we lost Nathan Ellington because of those contract negotiations in promotion because he felt like he, he wasn't... Uh, didn't have the right contract so this is something that I was certainly aware of so I signed the contract at the start of the season and the understanding was we wouldn't we wouldn't um, publicize that because of all of the things that were going on and I was okay with that um, but I think it got lost in the narrative of when I came to my the end of my time and the end of my career at Reading because the perception was I stayed on having um, running out my contract or or, or activating a clause, which I absolutely wouldn't have done. And it's not even, I mean, even if it's not about the club, it was purely because my intention was to keep playing. You know, my, my dream of retirement was going back down the leagues, maybe finishing up at Hayes or Bristol Rovers and waving to the fans with my family in the, in the crowd. And that's not what happened. I retired, my last football match was away at Southampton, going down with an injury. And, you know, I never played football again at a professional level. And that's certainly not how I wanted it to be. So as much as it hurt the club, me retiring, uh, the fans or anybody else, it hurt me more because, you know, I'd come up through the leagues. I'd done it the hard way. I played in every single division. Um, and, you know, there was never any doubt that I would have continued to play on as, as long as my body could take me. Yeah, no, totally. Well, you look what you went through with your hip injury. 
after that trying to get back and like you say i did think it created a lot of kind of like misinformation and you being kind of having kind of issues with social media which was only just starting then wasn't it people like sending stuff it was and it was hard to deal with because the reality is when you're being injured is something that you know from the outside looking in i guess the perception i can understand it is you're getting paid to do nothing or you're getting paid just to have a couple massages and try to get that fit. I can tell you the mental challenges, the physical challenge, the emotional challenge of coming back from an injury is one of the hardest parts of football. I would say the hardest part of football. First of all, on the emotional side, you're, whether you like it or not, and this is the, the difficulty of football, when you're injured, no matter how hard anybody tries, you're not part of it. You're not part of it. You go into the dressing room, you're not training, you're not playing. I felt like after being such a integral part of the squad, an integral part of the club, I became a ghost. I was, you know, I was uh, not part of the banter with the guys. I wasn't being able to contribute on the pitch. I wasn't there uh, at, the, at the start of the games and the end of the games. And even if I was, it didn't feel the same. And that was a huge challenge. Uh, coming back from my hip injury, one of the challenges was it was the kind of injury where they said, okay, six weeks, you'll be back again. So I'd go away, I'd do all the rehab, I'd come back in six weeks, we'd do a preseason, I'd get back into it with the boys and I'd break down. And I'd go back and I'd go through another eight weeks and I'd come back, I'd have two or three sessions and then I'd break down. That happened six or seven times. Uh, I left England actually to go over to Holland to spend some time with some specialists six weeks away from my young family. Uh, not because the club asked me to, because that was my desire to get back to playing. And it wasn't possible. Uh, and knowing that it got to the point where I couldn't, my career was over. I mean, it was the worst possible scenario to what I said earlier. I didn't get a chance to wave to my kids. I didn't get that, that last game. I didn't get to go back to, you know, uh, I didn't get to you know, wave goodbye to the Reading fans, for instance. And of course, the perception was, you know, he... He ran down his contract, knew he couldn't get back. It wasn't until I announced I was going to retire that I accepted that I was going to retire. And it was extremely hard on me uh, across all of those levels that I've, just, that I've just mentioned. Yeah, the mental strain on footballers, people just think they get paid a lot of money and that's it. Everything's fine. They don't have any you know? issues. Everything's easy. That's because as a fan, we don't have that money. So we think the solution is having money when actually it isn't. You still have issues. Yeah, and you know, it's going to sound crass, I, I know, but after a while, you stop looking at the money. It's not about that anymore. If you have a two-year contract, you're going to get two years of money. It's going to be about how much you, you sacrifice, how much you, you give, how hard you work. And I don't think you get to know what, how old I was, 35, 36, having played at the level that I did without having that inner strength and inner belief that it was never about the money. My first contract at Hayes FC was 15 pounds a week. If it was about the money, I would have, you know, I would have done some, some, some extra hours at my job as an exports clerk. So, you know, it was never about that. Uh, it was always about trying to take my ability as far as I could and trying to prove something to myself. The, the motivation to, to extract every last bit out of your, out of your ability comes from, for me anyway, and I know I can't speak for everybody, comes from that never being satisfied, always being a competitor. You know, when I won, it was relief. I'd never felt happy when I won. It was, 
oh, thank God, we've won three points. But then that anxiety about the next game was never um, settling. So all of, all of that narrative that was created towards the end of my, of my career, unfortunately, uh, flies in the face of, of, of my values as a player, and I, I hope, and as a human being. So it was difficult to take. However, you also have to have thick skin, and you have to be able to, to, um, to deal with things and just take it on the merit that you know what's right and keep, and keep trucking. Yeah, you have to listen to people that you trust and know yourself, isn't it? That's what it comes Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And people want to talk about injuries. Just look at Jem Karachan, how long he was out for. Look at Jordan Ubita, who's in the team now, out for two years. I mean, that is so hard. And the fact that he's come back and he's playing at a very good level now, that is a remarkable thing. And you could have given him all the money in the world. He'd just rather be on that pitch and play. Kudos to him because um, I never really had too many challenges with, with injuries. And, um, and it, funnily enough, an injury being what finished me off with my hip issues, uh, it just, it was, it was horrible. And the strange thing about it is having to understand it from the point that, you know, seeing things happen outside your control, becoming that ghost in the dressing room, but also recognizing that that's the natural order of things. That's how this game goes. Uh, I came up and took position, uh, took the, the number nine or the striker position from strikers who were coming towards the end of their career, people who were injured, people who were out of form, and there, but for the grace of God, go I. It was my time, and it was, it was time for a new Jason Roberts or a new person to come in and stake his claim and, and to realize you're part of that circle because when you're a footballer, you're, you feel invincible. You know, you feel like, you know, those are only other people's problems. They're not your problems. And the realization that, no, it's coming to you. It's one thing for sure when you come into the game is you're going to be making your way out. But that invincibility and thinking it's never going to happen to you is probably what keeps people so, so motivated. But when the reality comes, it can be devastating for some people. Yeah, totally. I, I can imagine that because you've lost like your whole kind of, your whole kind of being. You shouldn't be like that. But it is, isn't it? It's what you are. You're a footballer and that's what your job is. That motivation, that Saturday, that Tuesday, that Wednesday. But during that player season in the Premier League, we had, you made 12 appearances, but you played in one of the craziest games I've ever seen against Arsenal. I, now, I can see your face. You can't see it on the podcast. But that was when you scored your last goal for Reading. But just what happened in that game, Jason? Just madness, wasn't it? A crazy football match and one which it, it really irks me from the position of I, on a personal standpoint, I played several times against Arsenal. I always, for some reason, I feel like I always played well. Didn't always win, but in some big moments, we won. I'm thinking of Wigan when we, we, we beat them in the semi-final to get to the final of the League Cup. I scored in the last moment. Uh, that season, I played in the last game at Highbury. So some really iconic moments for me personally. And Arsenal's a club which I had a lot of respect for because of the way they do things, you know, the marble halls, all of that stuff. There's, a, there's something um, magical about Arsenal. Uh, but that game, again, we went in there really positive. I felt really good. I come back from, I think it was an ankle injury uh, just before the hip. And I come back to fitness and I felt really strong that game. And I'd always played relatively well against Koscielny. 
And great ball from Hal robson Khan, who I connect uh, in the box. And it's 1-0, I believe it was. And for the first half an hour, it was one of the best performances I've been part of. Everything came off. We looked like a top four side. Brilliant. And at halftime, I believe they're three or four nil up. I can't remember. Oh, four nil. One, Jason. They scored just before. Four nil going into halftime and Phil Walcott scores. Yes. Yeah. And that was the worst thing that could happen to us. The momentum shift in football just before the halftime, he scores devastating pace, I remember. And I went into the dressing room and you could feel the fear. You could feel that it suddenly became, what would happen if we lost this? We know they got the quality. What would happen? And, you, and it's, it's a typical thing in football. It's why you, when a team scores, why does a team always drop five yards deeper? Because you have something to protect. Mm. It's just a psychological thing that is, no matter how much you talk about it, it's just, it's just human instinct to protect. And we went out in that second half protecting. And they, you know, got a little bit of luck. And of course, the quality they have, it just felt like a tsunami. Just, they just kept coming and coming and coming. Uh, but I still, I remember coming off and walking to the other side of the pitch, you know, doing a slow clap to the fans, thinking, okay, we're going to do this. And um, I remember when they scored to bring it to extra time, I'm off the pitch now, and the camera pans over to the managers, and I'm going crazy and effing and blinding like I do. And my, some of my family members saw that they still bring it up now. But one of the things that was difficult about it was it's not many opportunities you get to beat a top four sides in the top four side in the manner of which we, we started that game. And, and, <laughs> and what really upsets me from a personal perspective is that's the game people now talk to me about when they're talking about Arsenal. I still get people come up to me and tell me about that 7-5 game. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what about the, the Wigan the Wigan Arsenal game. What about the West Brom Arsenal game when I scored? And we, what about? But no, doesn't matter. This is in a, in your career. You'll have four or five games that everyone remembers, and unfortunately, this is one of them. Yeah, I've, yeah, it's hard because every year Arsenal remember it. I mean, who doesn't blame them? You know, it's such a weird game for them. But as a Reading fan, it's painful. But actually playing in it, I mean, that the dressing room afterwards must have been completely dead. Just. I've never leave the dressing room faster. I, I, I think I waited around for the, for the team talk, but I was out of the dressing room as fast as I could. I was just disgusted, not, not, on a, not on a personal level with the players. I wasn't disgusted with the players. I was just, for the same reason we're talking about it now, if we had won the game, we'd be talking about it now, the fact that we beat a really good Arsenal side. And we lost that right by losing that game in such spectacular such a spectacular way that I knew it was. So I wanted us all to enjoy that moment. I wanted us to have that together, and we didn't. And now, for the rest of our lives, we're going to have to hear about it. And unfortunately, that's football. That's just, that's just the way it goes. It's brutal. It's brutal, isn't it? And there was another incident that was at Anfield earlier in the season as well, where before the match, they have this situation where you wear the kicker-out shirts, and kind of all the players wear them. Uh, you decided not to wear them. It's kind of like talk us through the, how they came to that decision. Sure. Well, I was uh, on the, the management committee of the Professional Footballers Association. So I was very much involved with the issues, underlying issues, 
some of the challenges facing us from a body of players, from a collection of players. And I think the racism issue had really reached ahead at that point uh, regarding some of the issues that we'd had with high profile players, some of the issues we had with John Terry, the way that the reaction to what had happened in that case, the reaction to what happened with Louis, uh, Louis Suarez. Uh, and I was, I was really at a point that I, I didn't feel on a personal level, I could sign up to, to messaging that said that we were taking racism seriously. Unfortunately, this came out that I was having an issue with Kick It Out, and it wasn't an issue with them per se. If it was any um, messaging which was around anti-racism, I would have felt the same way and I wouldn't have worn it, regardless of the stakeholder. Um, because the reality was, in my view, racism wasn't being dealt with in the robust way that was required. Uh, so it was just a personal view that I was not going to wear uh, the kick it out shirt on that occasion. Now, there had been many players who hadn't worn the, the shirts for a variety of reasons. Uh, there was a lot of ill feeling to the, towards the way the stakeholders were engaging with this issue, not just about what was going on on the pitch with the, the abuse, uh, some of the high profile issues, but also around lack of black managers, lack of black representation across the board, so that was my personal view. And, uh, you know, I remember at the time being caught in the eye of a storm. And, and, you know, I remember some very high profile people, including Sir Alex Ferguson speaking out at his press conference about it, uh, Arsene Wenger and, and, and others. But I felt it was the right thing to do. It was, it was my view, which I was entitled to have. And, uh, you know, what was, what was interesting about it is that a number of players, a uh, number of teams didn't wear the shirt where there was those feelings amongst players, both black and white, who didn't feel that was the right time to have that kind of messaging. So, uh, you know, it was a personal view. Uh, I, was, I wasn't surprised that other people felt the same way. I wasn't surprised that a lot of players didn't wear these shirts for a variety of reasons. And I think the proof is, you know, the proof in, in my feelings for that are that many years later, unfortunately, we're still having the same conversations. We're still engaged in issues around, around abuse of players in their workplace. We're still engaged in conversations around uh, the extremely low proportion of black and ethnic minority coaches and managers throughout the game. Uh, when you have a game with 30% black players and you have less than, I believe, last look that I looked, less than 2% uh, across the leagues as in managers' representation. Uh, very small, less than that in coaches at various level, academy directors leadership roles, administration roles. And I think the game, football has an opportunity to, to shine a light on these issues, to put policies in place to address these concerns. And I think football historically has challenged these issues. My uncle Sewell Regis being one of, one of the, the players who were one of the first to really, you know, come on the scene, take on a lot of abuse, but actually show through his performances whose personality and the way he engaged with that, that actually black players could play football. They could play in the cold, that they, that they were able to deal with some of the, the challenges that they faced. But I still feel that we have a long way to go, a long way to go in ensuring that representation is followed throughout the game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, talking about your uncle there, Sir Regis, what a man. What an absolutely, forget, just an incredible player. 
just the way he impacted West Brom, yeah, the reaction in football um, when he sadly died a few years ago just showed so how much he was respected as a man. It, it did, and from a, from a family perspective, it was really overwhelming to see the, the way football reacted to his passing. A lot of great players have been with us and passed. A lot of great personalities have, uh, and we, we, we cherish and we respect them all. But the way the way the game reacted to my uncle's passing, I think it it signified that he meant more to the game than just his ability. It was about what he represented to so many people. Certainly in my community, he was someone that a whole generation of people looked to because they didn't see um, many of us. There was a very small amount of, of of black players playing at that time, and I think he came in a young player out of nowhere, 19 years old, straight from non-league football into the top division, into a team that had three black players, three degrees, Brendan Batson, Laurie Cunningham, alongside my uncle, and they had a different, they, they, they brought something different to the game. And I think the things that they had to overcome uh, meant that my uncle's legacy was much more than what he represented just as a footballer. And, and, and I thank the whole of the football family for doing that. All of the Midlands clubs, Coventry, Aston Villa, West Brom, even the likes of Warsaw, all of those Midlands clubs, Wolves, who, who really, really valued his contribution to the game and treated his, his passing as such. So from a family perspective, I can never be thankful enough. West Brom in particular were incredible with the way they dealt with, with the scenario and with my family. And that's something that I'll, we will never forget. Yeah, totally. Going back to play for West Brom after having your uncle being there, well, there must have been in the news, amazing situation as well. But I recently listened to a podcast that was done by, I was Andrew Coe on it, from your foundation that organised it, the Jason Roberts Foundation, which you started in 2007. Do you, how do you take more pleasure from playing or from the work with your foundation now or with CONCACAF as well? You know, I think... The work that we do at the Jason Roberts Foundation is something which has really changed my life. I mean, I realized as a footballer, I had a certain position and a certain duty to give something back. And I think that came from my uncle being, you know, I'm coming from a, a family where I have three uncles who play professional football. Cyril Regis, as you know, and we just discussed. Also my uncle Dave Regis, who played for, for Stoke and played for Notts County, several clubs. He also played in the Premier League for Notts County. My uncle Otis Roberts, who played in Europe uh, as well. So I think I recognized my, my opportunity to give something back. Uh, so the foundation was really started up quite early. I was maybe 27 years old. And even though it says the Jason Roberts Foundation, it really is about uh, both the Roberts side of my family and the Regis side of my family coming together to give something back to, to our communities. And, you know, I, we, we all come from Northwest London. Uh, a tough neighborhood, one of the poorest, toughest neighborhoods in London. And, you know, I saw firsthand the impact that sport could have that because of my uncle's impact and the fact that I loved football in the neighborhood, I was always, no, 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 that's, that's the footballer. You know, I was always given that, that opportunity to stay away from some of the more challenging issues that came about growing up in inner city London. And I recognize that that, inspiration that my uncles that that community were able to give to me I wanted to magnify that I wanted to ensure that as many young people got the benefit of not only access to sport but the belief that through sport they could be they could 
achieve their goals, whether that is, you know, working a job, whether that's being a fan, whether that's continuing to participate in, in, in sport, whether that's finding all the values that we all know that sport can give you. Uh, I felt that it was a duty of mine and my family to give back. So we did that. If the foundation continues to operate uh, in, in London, it continues to operate in the Caribbean, where, again, another place that means so much to me. So I think the foundation and the impact we've been able to generate over the over 10 years that we've been delivering is probably the, the, the biggest thing that I've been able to do with this platform that football has, has, has given me. And, you know, we've been able to engage with partners like Sport England, Ministry of Sport in the UK, uh, with Laureus, with the Premier League, uh, you know, so many different stakeholders who have, who have worked with us because they, they share with us our, our, our belief that football brings so much value to people. And, you know, it's something that I'm extremely proud of. Yeah, definitely. So when you look back at your time at Reading Football Club, how do you kind of feel about it? <clears throat> I, I feel extremely proud, proud of what we achieved. But in, in line with, <laughs> with my personality, disappointed that we didn't do more in the Premier League because I think that that opportunity was there. I feel... I feel a slight disappointment that I wasn't able to be fit that season. I wasn't able to continue to con contribute that I wasn't able to finish my career, uh, you know, on the pitch with Reading. I sort of, it sort of petered out uh, in a way that I wouldn't have, have liked. But I do, I do remember what it felt like to be in that dressing room. And, and from that perspective, I, I left the game in a manner which was, it was great to be part of something. It was great to be part of something and to work with great people. Reading is an amazing club, which I, I felt like I had so much history with. Um, it's, it's, it will always be a special club to me. In fact, last time I went back, I went to, to watch a game and I've, I always, I've been treated really well. Um, it also allowed me to successfully transition. Um, you know, part of me coming to Reading was, continuing to do the media commitments that I have. I had, whether that was with uh, 606, which I was doing at the time with the BBC, whether that was my, my, um, my appearances on Match of the Day on, and, and, and Final Score with that work that I did with the BBC and continue to educate myself. I was, I was doing an online, an onboarding uh, governance course. And I think all of that really helped me to, to focus on, on the next steps of my journey, which was to be in administration and I continued to educate myself as a result of, of the support I had at Reading and, and, and I now live in Miami and the director of development for CONCACAF, which is the governing body of, of, of football over here, one of the confederations working with FIFA to promote and develop football. I feel very proud uh, of my time at, at Reading and, and I feel happy that it allowed me to, to continue to develop as as football should do, especially as players are coming towards the end of their career and trying to ensure that they're in the best possible position when they finally retire. Yeah, definitely. You seem to have found a kind of something to take over that space, which I think a lot of footballers have struggled with that I've spoken to or just know. It's a really difficult thing to get rid of that almost kind of like a drug, isn't it? The football and the Saturday buzz that you get from the crowd. It is, and it's something that, I mean, if there is a way to replicate, I haven't found it. 
Um, the oftentimes I speak to players, we all talk about the same thing. We talk about that loss, sense of loss of the dressing room, that sense of loss of competing together, camaraderie, team spirit. But um, again, my focus was to continue to give back to football. I, I always felt that coaching and management wasn't for me. I enjoyed the media, I really did. It's something that I value the experiences that I had. But continuing to educate myself, doing a master's in football administration, focusing on how I could be part of building policy, how, how I could be part of, of continuing to develop football, certainly from a governance standpoint, is something that I'm really proud that I was able to not only focus on what I wanted to do, but to find a way to do it. Um, you know, at 42 years old, I'm, I'm relatively young or youngish. Certainly younger than me, Jason. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, to be, to be involved in the governance of football and this role that I have at, at CONCACAF um, really is, is something which means a lot to me. I mean, we spoke earlier about giving back to the game. I played international football for Grenada since I was 19 years old. I consider Grenada home. When I retired, I went back back to the West Indies and traveled back. And even though I was doing match of the day, even though I was doing various media commitments, I was still based in the Caribbean, a place that's extremely important to me. And when Victor Montaliani, the president of, of CONCACAF, when he won the election uh, four years ago and, and you know, had a vision of one CONCACAF, had a vision of creating more competitions, uh, you know that CONCACAF, we have a nation's league similar to Europe, similar to UEFA. Uh, I only had 12 caps for Grenada because there was hardly any games. It turn up to try to qualify for the World Cup, we wouldn't make it and there wouldn't be games for another four years. And now with the Nations League, we have over 200 games in the four-year cycle. We've increased the number of teams in the Gold Cup, which is our European championships from a UEFA standpoint, from 12 to 16. More players are getting access to competition. Uh, we're getting uh, more coaching education to coaches where it didn't exist before. So I feel really good about the work that I'm doing. And, you know, long may, long may it continue me working, working in football administration. And, and I, I really feel privileged that I'm in a position where I can bring all that I've learned in football uh, to the administration side. Sounds like you're doing a fabulous job, Jason. I just want to thank you for everything you did for Red and Football Club when you were there. Some of the greatest moments of the last decade, definitely, you were involved with. And thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I want to send my regards to yourself and to all the Reading fans who, uh, who gave me such an amazing uh, reception and, and, and really gave me some of the best years of my career. Uh, alongside that dressing room we always knew that we had the Reading fans behind us and they they gave us so much so really want to thank all of the Reading fans for it. Cheers thank you